0: We're right in the middle of our 11 week study, um, and we've been making our way through 1 Timothy. I'm going to borrow an analogy from my own pastor, and I'd like us to imagine together that we're hiking up a mountain. We're on a hike. I'm not usually given over to any kind of exercise that would involve hiking, but maybe you are. In any case, we can all imagine just how hard, what kind of hard work is involved in hiking up a mountain. Okay, In our study, we've been climbing to the top of the mountain. The difficult ascent um, has caused us to work hard in some of these passages as it's taken us through some details of what the church should look like. Right, This is Paul's letter to Timothy of what the church should look like. And we've studied so far four qualities that God has given to us in his word that should be reflected in the church. So the church should be a place of sound doctrine, right? Timothy was to confront false teachers and teach the truth. We have an absence of truth in our culture today, and the church really needs to be a place where that void is filled. We need to be careful not to go off into error. And the church is to be a place of grace, We saw in the end of chapter 1, Paul gave his own testimony of how he'd he'd been shown grace and received mercy, even though he was the worst of sinners. We each come broken and sinful, and the church should be a place where we find grace and forgiveness. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And the church should be a place of prayer. We saw in chapter 2 that Paul gave instructions on how the church is to pray in general for all kinds of people in all kinds of places. And we need to see this in our churches as well. And finally, um, the church is to be a place where there is godly leadership. Godly elders and deacons, which would be part of the laity. Paul had laid out the leadership qualities that Timothy is to look for and those who will lead the church. And we need to realign ourselves with these godly characteristics. Also being aware that these Christ-like characteristics, these qualities should be reflected in our own lives as well. So this has been our uphill climb to the top of our mountain. And our hard and sometimes tedious work will pay off when we crest over the top of the mountain today and see the view before us. We're going to be reminded in this section why we are climbing the mountain. Otherwise known as Bible study. As we reach the summit today, we're going to see the substance of this epistle, and we're going to see why Timothy is writing this letter, or Paul is writing this letter to Timothy. Let's um, pause now and ask God to um, lead us today. Father, we do come to you in quietness and submission humble ourselves before your word and I pray that you will pause the distractions, the busyness that's in our minds and help us to hear you today, help us to see you today and may that vision of you and your word change our hearts. I ask that you will give clarity of speech and thought as I speak the words that you've given your word, and may I handle your word rightly today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, turning your Bibles, if you haven't already, to First Timothy, we are going to start off in chapter 3. I'm going to read um, this, just the, the three verses there in uh, chapter 3 that is our text at the beginning here. So starting in verse 14, Paul says, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things so, to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is this mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory okay so paul says i hope to come to you soon right up until now paul has been addressing these matters vital to the ministry at ephesus but he's going to turn here and he's going to speak directly to timothy himself and he's longing to come back to ephesus remember in acts chapter 20 paul had told the men there as he before he left them that he that none of them would see his face again they they might not ever see him again and they were sorrowful over that But here, Paul lets Timothy know know that he's planning to come. And so I'm sure that gave Timothy uh, something to be excited about. He would see his dear friend and mentor, who was like a father to him, again face to face. But in the meantime, there were these critical matters that needed to be addressed. And Paul is concerned that he might be delayed. So he writes to Timothy, sending the letter ahead of himself. He wants Timothy to have these instructions in hand before his arrival. And why might Paul be delayed? Uh, A few weeks ago, we talked about the hardships that Paul endured. Things like imprisonments, shipwrecks, right? That would delay him. And though he plans to visit uh, Ephesus, travel there, he is well aware that his plans might be altered. So he writes to Timothy. And in verse 15, he says, So that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. Your version might say how people ought to conduct themselves. In the original language, the word people does not appear. And the word one, how one ought to behave, is actually singular, which tells us that Paul is addressing Timothy here. The Greek word used for to conduct oneself or to behave is like a mile long. So I'm not going to try and pronounce that. But it means to behave oneself specifically to live a certain manner of life. Or to conduct oneself indicating one's manner of life and character. So it's not just addressing how we behave when we come to church, when we enter the church building, but rather one's whole manner of life. And this is why Paul is writing this letter to Timothy, so that he and his people... Um, will know how they ought to live, how they ought to live. So why is this important? Well, Paul tells them that it has to do with who they are. Again, in verse 15, he says, So that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. So we have four descriptions of the church in this verse. The household of God, literally is rendered God's household, which kind of shows us God's possession. The word here can be rendered either a building, like a dwelling, or a family. And it would depend on uh, the context that it's used. So here it's used like a family. Um, The sense is that the church is a community, a community that's been forged in forgiveness and joined together in mutual love. And then the Church of the Living God literally is translated the Living God's Church. This is the Greek word ecclesia, from which we get our English word ecclesiology, which refers to the doctrine of the Church. The meaning of this word brings forth a picture of an assembly of people who are gathered together to hear the preaching and teaching of sound doctrine and for worship. Now, Pillar pillar we know what a pillar is it's a column right that supports like the roof of a building Uh, in ephesus remember the temple of artemis was there that building was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world and it had more than 127 pillars that went around the buildings very beautiful building Um, so a pillar a column supporting the weight of the roof is used to show the local church's responsibility to support sound doctrine, by its teaching and by its practice. In other words, the church is to hold up the truth, and that will be a beautiful thing. Buttress, how is that for a word? A support or a stay. So a buttress, like if you have a wall, a buttress would come along like at an angle to the wall. Somehow you can look on Google to see pictures of it, but it, with the, part, the point is to support it. To keep it from falling over. It's going to hold it up. Um, So along with the pillar, the church is to hold up the truth and to keep it secure. So what we see here is that the church, made up of people who are coming together to worship the living God, we need to know how to live in order that our lives as well as our words will hold up and keep secure the sound doctrine of the word of God how one ought to behave. So still, we're hiking upwards, and we're going to get to the summit. Let's look at verse 16. He says, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. Think back to when Paul had first arrived in Ephesus. We looked at this uh, in the very beginning in Acts chapter 19. Paul had gone into this city, and, and he saw that it was engulfed in idolatry but he started preaching the gospel, and people were um, believing in the gospel, and they were turning away from their idolatry. But a riot broke out in that city, and for two whole hours, the crowd was yelling in one voice, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Now here Paul writes, great indeed, we confess is the mystery of godliness. Great indeed. I'm sure that the people there in the Ephesian congregation would have recalled those words the day of the riot, but now they know the truth. Great indeed. Those words highlight the magnitude, the excellence, and the non-negotiable veracity of the following words. And those words are great indeed is the mystery of godliness. But what is the mystery? In Colossians chapter two, verses two and three, we read this: that the knowledge of God's mysteries is Christ. It is Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures and wisdom of knowledge. It's Christ. Paul is talking about the redemptive truths that were formerly concealed that have now been revealed in Christ's coming. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He could say, great indeed, we confess, is Jesus Christ. There is a close connection, then, between Christ's coming and true godliness that he's talking about here on the part of his followers. Paul wants Timothy to grow in godliness himself and to promote and teach that as well. And before we look at these six clauses that Paul writes here, I want to point out That first word that we see in the NIV where it says he, he was manifested in the flesh, um, in the Greek, the first word is actually God. Mm -hmm. The King James Version reads verse 16 like this, and without controversy, in other words, there's no argument here, great is the mystery of godliness, God was manifest Mm -hmm. in the flesh, justified in the spirit, and so on. Now, we know um, these words are referring to Jesus Christ, right? The second person of the Trinity. So does this present a problem to us, that the, that the original text used the word God instead of he? No, because Jesus is God, right? So, so this is what the Apostle John wrote in the very beginning of his gospel. He wrote in, in verse, chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the word, and that's Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So this leans into the doctrine of the Trinity, which is this, that there is one God who exists eternally in three persons. This is a foundational distinction between Christianity and all other religion. So while there is one God, the work of redemption was carried out by the second person of the Trinity, Christ Jesus. So now let's look at these six clauses that Paul writes here, and these are all truths about Christ Jesus. He was manifested in the flesh. So this means he was revealed in the flesh, or appeared in the flesh. This is referring to the incarnation. Jesus Christ was made incarnate, which means to give bodily form and substance to. Now here's a quote by a man named Gregory of Nysianus, I know you know who he is, right? He was a fourth century theologian. He had made a significant impact on the shape of Trinitarian theology. He said this, the self-existent comes into being. The uncreate is created. That which cannot be contained is contained. That which cannot be contained is created. Contained The uncreated one took on the form of the created. That which cannot be contained is contained. It's just hard to wrap our minds around that. But it's what Paul's referring to when in the second chapter of his letter to the Ephesians, he writes that Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, he had to come and be revealed in the flesh, with skin and bones, flesh and blood. Up until Jesus came in the flesh, no one had ever seen God. And First uh, John 1:14 tells us that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That is, that God was united with a human nature in one person and was truly man and truly God who lived in history as Jesus Christ, the incarnation. He came to show us God and to bring us to God, according to 1 Peter 3.18. And then he was vindicated by the Spirit. To vindicate means to free from a charge. When Jesus was arrested... They brought charges against him. He was condemned and crucified like a common criminal in shame and disgrace. He was condemned. But the Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity, vindicated him, proved him to be innocent of the charges that were brought against him by raising him from the dead. If Christ were still in the tomb, it would mean that God's wrath was not satisfied and we would still stand guilty before God. It is not that the resurrection accomplishes our justification, because Jesus' sinless life and sin-bearing death did that, but rather it assures us of our justification. It was God the Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead, Romans eight eleven. And by that act, God declared Christ's atoning sacrifice had been accepted. The penalty of our sins was paid for. The resurrection was God's declaration that he had canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Colossians 2.14 He was vindicated by the Spirit, and then he was seen by angels. The scholars differ a bit on the interpretation of angels here. Some think that this is a reference to angels as heavenly beings, which we do see in scripture. Angels announced Christ's birth in Luke 2. They ministered to Jesus after his temptation in the wilderness in Matthew 4. An angel came and ministered to him in the garden of Gethsemane in Luke 22. They witnessed his resurrection. That's in all four of the Gospels. They were present at his ascension in Acts 1, and they continue to worship him day and night, as we see in Revelation 4. But other scholars think that the word angel, which literally means messenger, could be referring to people who saw the risen Christ in person and had been sent out as witnesses to spread the good news that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. In 1 Corinthians 15, we read about those to whom Jesus had appeared after he was risen. And it's a testimony to the fact that Jesus was real in bodily form after the resurrection. He was seen by angels either way. And then he is proclaimed among the nations. Jesus said in Matthew 24:14. And the gospel, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. In Acts 1.8, they were Jesus' final words to his disciples before he ascended to heaven. He said, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And the gospel is indeed being proclaimed among the nations even today. Today, even the work continues to reach nations who have not yet heard the good news of salvation. Next, he is believed on in the world. This is the very reason why Jesus came into the world. John 3:16 and 17 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And Paul wrote in, in Romans, we see in chapter 10, verse 9, For if you confess with your mouth, that that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. This is the reason why he came into the world. Finally, we read that he was taken up in glory. This is talking about Christ's ascension. When he returned to heaven to sit at the right hand of his father, because the work that he came to do was finished. When a victor Returned from from the work that he, from the battle that he was doing, he sat down. That was a sign of victory. Jesus sat at the right, is seated at the right hand of his father. So these truths about Christ Jesus, this is what we confess. These are the essentials of Christianity, of our faith. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Now, earlier I mentioned that there is a close connection between Christ's coming and true godliness on the part of his followers. Paul says, great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. So what does that mean? If the mystery revealed is Jesus Christ, how is that tied to godliness? Well, remember that the church has a job to do, and that is to proclaim the truth. And that truth is the truth about Jesus, the truth about the Incarnation, about the substitutionary death of Jesus and his resurrection. The church is the protector of the truth. But the church isn't the source of truth. Jesus is the source of truth, the source of power that we have to live a godly life by living our lives in Christ Jesus and for Christ Jesus. This is not something we argue about. Right? The King James Version had said without controversy. It's essential. We agree to it. We believe it. In the heart of the Gospel, the key to godliness is that our belief and our behavior are linked together. You cannot say that you believe in these truths of Scripture and about Christ and then live like the world. That doesn't match. Our belief And our behavior are linked together. It's to have Jesus in your life, to magnify the Lord, and to mortify your flesh. Which means to subdue or restrain our sin. Because the fact is, we can't please God on our own. We can't please God apart from Jesus. We can't live a godly life unless we are living our life in Christ, informed by Jesus. Jesus gives us the power to do what is right. It's possible to live a godly life by believing and loving, receiving, and walking in Jesus by the power of his Holy Spirit. And we accept as true these six statements about Jesus. And we build our life on the truth of who Jesus is and what he has done to secure our redemption. And what Paul mentioned earlier about how one ought to behave, it makes sense then that it's not just how we act in church, but the manner in which we live our whole lives with godliness, holy living, living in a manner set apart from the world and for God. According to the Bible, God became a man and lived a perfect life so that he could die for our sins and destroy the work of the devil and defeat death for us. Jesus did that so that sin wouldn't have the final word in our lives, so that he could give life, eternal life. And this is the truth of the gospel. And this is the summit of the top of our mountain. This is the view of Christ and his work on our behalf. And and this is why we're hiking up this side of the mountain so we can get to the top and see the truth of Christ in all its glory. And it's beautiful. It's beautiful. But we can't stay on the top of the mountain. Anytime. Anyone who hikes knows that once you reach the top and you view and you are amazed by what you see and it fills your heart, but you've got to come back down. And so down we will go. We've been at the top. We had a glimpse of the glory of God and the person and work of Christ And now we'll return down to the bottom where the rubber meets the road. Let's pick up in chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving, By those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. So, Paul is saying here that the Holy Spirit makes this point unequivocally clear. The events that he is about to describe in this verse are definite, and they're certainly going to come to pass. In other words, the Spirit speaks in no uncertain terms. And what does he say? Some will depart from the truth, from the faith. Some Later times, some will depart from the faith. Just to comment on that later time, the Greek word that's used here is translated later or latter or coming after. So it depicts the time following Jesus' return, the ascension right that we read about in Acts 1, and up to the present time. So some scholars think Paul is specifically speaking about the last days. Others just think he's talking about what Timothy is very soon going to be facing in his ministry at Ephesus. But either way, it's still a warning. And we today, we are certainly in a much later time than when Paul wrote this letter, right? So it's a warning uh, for us as well. In Acts chapter 20, before Paul left the church at Ephesus, you remember that he warned them about what would be coming. That fierce wolves were going to come in to draw people away from the flock. So Paul reminds Timothy that some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teaching of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. Some will depart from the faith. Not all, but some. And that's important for Timothy to hear because he needs to remember that the teaching of sound doctrine will be what keeps those who hold the faith to the truth and be aligned with with, what the Word of God says. He needs to remember that. It's important. But some will depart from the faith. From the faith is referring to the essentials of Christianity. In other words, those six clauses that Paul had just finished talking about. Those essential truths about Jesus Christ. And we're going to have a little Greek lesson. The Greek word depart is the Greek word aphistami. Aphistami. it literally means to stand off, to desert, withdraw from, to fall away, become faithless, to shun or flee from. That's pretty specific. It means to reject or separate oneself from. Depart. There are four Greek words in the New Testament that are used when talking about this departing from the truth. There is the Greek word apostate. Apost- I knew I would do this. Apostasia. It means a falling away, a defection. Our English word apostasy. You can hear it in that. Second Thessalonians two one through three uses this word. In the King James, it's, it reads this. Um, For that day shall not come except there come a falling away first. The ESV uses the word the rebellion. They're falling away. And then we have a Greek word, that You can hear the English word scandalize there. It means to put a stumbling block or an impediment in the way upon which another may trip or fall. Jesus used this word in Matthew 24, 9 through 11, when speaking about the end times. And he said in verse 10, and then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And then we have the Greek word apostretho. And that means to turn oneself away, to turn back, to return, to desert. You're like going back to where you came from. The origin of our English word, apostrophe, comes from this. It's interesting because it actually means the act of turning away, right? Before it was used in a grammatical sense, right, an apostrophe, it was a rhetorical term that was used to describe that a, a moment that a speaker would, like, turn away from their audience, apostrophe. So when they're departing from the faith, they're turning away. You can see them going back to where they came from. 2 Timothy four 3 and 4 uses this word. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. And then we have the word in our Greek text today, aphistemi, literally means to desert. Four different Greek words that speak to a departure. Warnings in all of the New Testament about turning away from the faith. And and the message is this. As we get closer to the return of Christ, make sure that you are standing firm in your faith. Make sure. Don't be deceived by false doctrine or new doctrine or cultural shifts that influence your thinking or your behavior. Stand firm, hold fast, hold true to Jesus, know your Bible, know your Bible. So some will depart from the faith. What does it say? By devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. Many belief systems that we are even familiar with today are inspired by these spirits, deceitful spirits. Mormonism. Joseph Smith, who founded this movement, claims that he was visited by the angel Moroni. And you know, Mormons do not believe in the trinity or the inerrancy of scripture. Jehovah's Witnesses say that Michael the archangel is none other than the only begotten son of God, now Jesus Christ. And they are most well known for denying the Trinity, the deity of Christ, the personhood of the Holy Spirit, and the doctrine of eternal punishment. And there are many more. These are just two examples of what we can see when we see that the central truths about Christ are refused. We wander off. And remember what Paul wrote in his letter to the Galatian church? In chapter 1, verses 6-8, through he wrote this. The truth is that only Jesus is Lord, and that he was manifested in the flesh, he died a criminal's death, was buried, and three days later vindicated by the Spirit by his resurrection, and that he returned to heaven and is seated at the right hand of his Father, awaiting the day when he will come again in all his glory for his bride, which is the church. If anyone preaches something other than that, Paul says he should be accursed. This is serious. Do not be deceived. Deceiving spirits and teachings of demons, they are of their Father, the devil. Jesus told us exactly who Satan is. In John :44, he said, "He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth, because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Ladies, from the mouth of Jesus himself, we learn that Satan and his minions are liars. They are out to destroy us. They are out to deceive us. They are out to turn us away from the truth. And in verse 2, he continues, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. The insincerity of liars, the other translations use the word hypocrisy. It's a description of people who, like actors, play parts so well that their words have the ring of truth in them. Timothy has a difficult task ahead of him. False doctrine is insidious. It sneaks in. We have a serious task ahead of us as well. We have to cling to the truth, hold fast to sound doctrine. Seared consciences. Let's define conscience. The Greek word literally means a knowing with, or co-knowledge. Vine's Dictionary says it's a co-knowledge of oneself and God together. It's a self-awareness with God always in the equation. Not a self-awareness and the world in the equation. Self-awareness and God in the equation. He gave us that conscience. And the Bible speaks quite a bit about conscience. We have good conscience, first Timothy one, five and nineteen. We have a clear conscience, first Timothy three nine, a weak conscience, first Corinthians eight, verses ten and twelve, a guilty conscience, Hebrews ten twenty-two, corrupted conscience, Titus one fifteen, and seared conscience here in our passage. And some translations talk about this searing as with a hot iron. It's a burning. Branding. When flesh gets burned or seared, the nerve endings die and there's no more feeling left, right? No sensation. So a seared conscience is one that has been burned or branded till there's no more feeling in it. It's a desensitization and it comes from continually ignoring the spirit's promptings or convictions. That he brings us and these were the false teachers who were going around trying to incite people to abandon the faith and lead them off into various teachings so let's look at what they were teaching verse 3 says who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that god created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth so essentially they were inferencing that it would be more spiritual if you didn't marry Or you would be more sanctified if you didn't eat certain foods. Abstaining from food that God created as good will not make us righteous in his sight. Purposefully avoiding marriage, which God himself instituted in the Garden of Eden, will not make you a better Christian or give you a better standing before God. Hebrews 13.4 says marriage should be honored by all. And this doesn't mean that you have to be married in order to be doing the will of God. But but some were going around teaching that these guidelines or these laws, that they needed to be obeyed for justification and sanctification purposes. And they were leading people astray. They were getting sucked in. These two categories, food and marriage, are not meant to be exhaustive. And we could probably think of many more examples in our cultural context today that people cling to because they think that they will gain God's approval by doing so. Romans chapter 14 is a whole chapter devoted to the matter of whether to eat or whether to not eat. In verse 17, Paul wrote this, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, it's not, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit, So there was a belief that self-denial was a way to be justified before God. People thought that if they severely restricted food intake or comfort or relationships with others, that they would be more holy. And that they would set a standard and taught that everyone should live like that. And we see this in our world today. Listen to Colossians 2, 20 through 23. Paul is writing to the church there at Colossae. Verse 20 says, if with Christ you died to the elemental, elemental spirits of the world, so we've died to the world, right? Why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to its regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism, and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. People believe that if it could just stop the desires of their flesh, that this would justify them in the sight of God. And you know people that believe this yet today. But what is the truth? We cannot bring anything to God except our sin. That's all, that's all we have, our sin. And our righteous deeds, our own good works, Isaiah 64, six tells us that they're filthy in the sight of God. So things that we view as good, God sees as filthy. We can bring him nothing. Salvation is a work of God alone. We can't do anything to earn it. Only the blood of Jesus secures the favor of God. So these things that God created, the food that he made, marriage that he instituted, Paul says that these things that God created are good. But that's not a blanket statement for how we live today, right? Because even though God made it good, sin came into the world. And sin has corrupted the things that God has made. Man has defiled the things that God has made. And we need to be discerning, discerning. All things that God created are to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. The antidote for false doctrine is true doctrine, sound doctrine. Everything created by God is good, Nothing is to be rejected if it was received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. It kind of makes us think of Genesis one thirty one, right? Where God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. The principle that Paul is expounding here is that a relationship with God sanctifies participation in the created order, that things that were given by God. And of course, the relationship comes through faith, in Christ Jesus. Salvation is by Christ, not by abstaining from foods or marriage or whatever else you can think of. We need to be careful not to allow what the Bible forbids and not to forbid what the Bible allows. That relationship with God, it's going to be characterized in our lives by thankfulness, by being in the word of God, and by prayer. And these are regular activities that are seen in the life of a true believer. So how do we tie all this together? How do we tie it together? The Bible tells us that as believers in Jesus Christ, we are his bride. We are the church of the living God, the living God's church. We are part of God's household, God's Family. That's who we are, redeemed by the blood of Christ our Savior. The Bible then tells us how we are to live because of who we are. It does not say that we have to behave or live a certain way in order to gain God's favor, in order to be justified by His grace. No. Only the blood of Jesus does that. Rather, we ought to behave or live in a manner worthy of our calling. Listen to 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 10 through 12. And in the context, verse 7 says, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, so it's the second coming. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed, to this end we always pray for you that our God will make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our lord jesus christ may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our god and lord jesus christ do you see there this is a work of god we even see god's purpose here that the name of jesus may be glorified in you and you in him are you in him That is of first importance. If you don't know Christ Jesus as your Savior and as your Lord, that is where you start. That is where you start. If he is drawing you to himself, come. You come to him in submissiveness and humbleness, and you confess your sin, and you receive from him this free gift of forgiveness, redemption, and eternal life. That is where we start. And then we depend on him, we trust in him to do that work of making us worthy of our calling. Well, we've hiked up one side of the mountain, we've viewed the glory of God and the person and work of Christ, and while we keep that mountaintop experience in our hearts and in our minds, we have to start the trek back down the mountain. And we have to be careful To watch our step, I hear that coming down a mountain here, because I don't do it. (laughs) The coming down the mountain is hard too, right? You're going faster, you could trip. We have to be careful. Watch our step. Be careful to avoid false doctrine and cling to what is good. The enemy is out to derail us, to deceive us if possible. His work is going to continue, We live and move and have our being because of what God, through Christ, in the power of the Spirit, has accomplished for our redemption. Cling to what is good. Hold fast to your faith. Know what your Bible says and believe every word. Let's pray.